1 Corinthians chapter 13, I want to read this whole chapter to you. It's such an awesome chapter. It's fun arriving at this. In fact, this morning, it's short, but I, I couldn't get through the whole thing in my, in my study. And so uh, we're going to tackle part of it this morning. And um, let's check it out. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith Hope and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. G. Campbell Morgan said this. He said, examining this passage of Scripture is like trying to dissect a flower and understand it. And if you handle it too much, you'll, you'll, you'll actually lose the beauty of it. It's interesting that uh, as we left off last week in this discussion about uh, the gifts that we've been having and the discussion about the body of Christ that we've been having, the unity of the body of Christ, the importance of all of the members of, body of, of the body of Christ, the way that God uniquely gifts the body of Christ, that as we closed off in chapter uh, 12 there, Paul said this with his last thoughts in, in that chapter. He said, earnestly desire the higher gifts, but I will show you still a more excellent way. And so as we've seen the amazing working of God's spirit within his body, the way that he equips the body to, to be gifted and to minister to itself and to minister one to another. Paul takes us now to this point where he says, let me show you something that's more excellent than that. It, it's superior to that which I've already spoken of. It's beyond the gifts of the spirit and it's this, love. It's love. It's not that Paul is down on the discussion of, of gifts. Uh, not that he's down on the discussion in regards to the body of Christ and uh, the operations of the gifts where he's going to go in chapter 14. But in the middle here between the gifts of the Spirit, the body of Christ, and the operations of this gift, the gifts, he sandwiches uh, this message or this uh, lesson uh, that we refer to as the love chapter. Now, you know, maybe you haven't been around church much, maybe first time this morning, maybe sitting here for years, 
Uh, if you've been around the church and are familiar with the scripture, this is a familiar passage. But even if you're not, it's probably a familiar passage. If you attend almost any wedding, this is the scripture that's read, right? The love chapter. And you'll hear it in different ceremonies. In the, in the, in the Greek language, um, there are a number of words. There's actually four, but primarily three that are translated from Greek into the English language as the word love. In their, in their culture and in their understanding, one word did not grasp all of the depth of the meaning of love. And so they spoke of, the Greek language speaks of different types of love. There's the word eros. Uh, eros speaks of human love, speaks of physical love, speaks of sexual love. It speaks of lust. We get the English word erotica from the word eros in the New Testament. There's a Greek word that we're familiar with a love of fondness, the love of friendship. Uh, we're familiar with the fact that the city of uh, that kind of love, phileo. But when Paul speaks here of love in this word uh, phileo to speak of brotherly love, but he speaks of a love that you hear when you, when you kick around churches for lots of years. Agape love. A self-giving love. A love that gives of it. It's been said that agape love is a choice. It's something that is imparted by the Spirit of God. Divinely. In fact, you could say that, that agape is like a church word. It's one of them that's purely biblical in its definition. Purely ecclesiastical. Define agape outside of the working of the Holy Spirit. And love from one person to another. Or whether that be the love of a person towards God. And Christian... Agape love, whether exercised towards those in the body of Christ, side of the body of Christ who do not know the Lord Jesus, is not an impulse of feelings, simply affinity. It's emotional, but it's not based on emotions. Good to all men, and especially those who are in the household of faith. Self-denial for the sake of someone else. The gifts of the Spirit, the unity in the body, the operation of the gifts... But as I think of this agape love, I really think this chapter is a speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love. I am a noise. They just think they're having the greatest time and everyone else is going, ah. The noisy gong of the audience. They can hold an audience whether they're young or they're You know, the scripture tells us that words proceed from where? Determined by the depth of your heart. How much you love. The scripture tell us that the tongue can speak words of healing and the, tongues can, the tongue can speak words that will break a bone. The tongue can devastate, it can spew venom, we know. But when God gets a hold of a person's, person's heart, the, the motive of that person's life begins to change and God begins to change what comes out of the tongue and the action of the tongue. James talks about that in his letter. The trouble it is to tame the tongue. The power of the tongue. Often the tongue is the last thing the Lord gets a hold of in a Christian's life, isn't it? And the solution for the taming of the tongue is found when the love of Christ fills your heart. There must be living water in the wellspring of your life so that the tongue is transformed and changed. Proverbs says this, keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away 
your crooked speech, put away devious talk from you. The scripture always connects the working of the tongue with what is in the heart. And we need the love of God, the agape love of the Spirit of God to transform our hearts, to touch our heart. But we also need, Paul tells us here, the love of God to touch our intellect. Check it out. Verse 2. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So here Paul talks about the, the person with prophetic powers. Has the power to declare the things of God. Power to proclaim the testimony of Jesus. Revelation tells us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He has the power to proclaim the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. He understands mysteries, it says. And all knowledge, he can interpret life. He understands the operations of the universe. Full of knowing, full of knowledge, facts, information, skills in life. Acquired both through experience and through education. He has knowledge in theory and knowledge in practice. Understands the mysteries of the world. Not only does this person have that, this person Paul speaks about, but they can also discern spiritual things. He says, faith that can move mountains. They understand the scripture and the promises of God. They operate in faith. They, they have a firm belief in the word of God and so they trust God to to bring them through all situations and all circumstances and whatever comes across their life. This is the person that trusts God with their intellect and has laid hold of the promises of God with their intellect. And because of that, they can move mountains, Paul says. They, they experience changes in their situations or in their places in life because of their trust in God. But Paul says, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. In other words, it all adds up to zero. Zilch, zip, nada, diddly squat, it doesn't matter. I am nothing. And so what does the, Paul, what, what does the Apostle Paul say to us? He's saying this, church. Love is everything. Love is everything because if we have not love, I am nothing. And the agape love of Christ needs to touch our hearts so that the, our lips are transformed. And the agape love of the Lord Jesus Christ needs to fill my mind so that my intellect is transformed for the glory of God. You know, I was thinking about human wisdom, human knowledge. That's the problem with it. That's where the shortfall is. When we say, why is it that certain schools of thought cannot meet the gospel, though they're trying to apply human gnosis, and wi wisdom, knowledge? And the answer is this, the difference is love. Love. It must transform our heart, and it must transform our intellect. And then Paul tells us that we also need the love of Christ to be the motivator of our will. Check out verse 3. 
He says, if I, ha- if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. You know, it's hard. When you think about this verse, I think, really? How could someone give away everything that they have? How could they lay down their lives and not be motivated by love to sacrificially give in that way? And yet, Paul says a person can. They can give it all away. They can sacrifice their own body to be burned and give up their body to death, and yet they can do so with the wrong motives, with the wrong intentions. I'm reminded in 1 Kings chapter 18 of the prophets of Baal. As the great showdown happened on Mount Carmel, the altar was built, uh, the oxen were slain, the meat was put upon the altar, and the prophets of Baal began to cry out to their God to answer with fire from heaven to prove that he was the true, real God. And as the morning went on and slipped into the afternoon and the day went on and on and on, Elijah began to taunt them. The prophet of God began to uh, just give them a hard time and make fun of their God. And the scripture tells us that in their desperation, what did they begin to do? They began to slash themselves, to cut themselves, to spill their blood um, so as to arouse the answer of their God. And, you know, even today, there are, there are many religious practices around the world where people will harm themselves for the sake of it. They'll blow themselves up. They'll cut themselves. The Buddhists will burn themselves. And they do so to, to appease God or to bring about his favor, his blessing. And what Paul is telling us is that that does not register with the living God. A man gains nothing in his account with God by any such actions. That though a man go to the limit of absolute sacrifice and he laid down his life, if it's not for the motive of love, it's worthless. You gain nothing. You know, many Christians take this attitude that the Christian life is all about sacrifice. Sacrificing your money, sacrificing your life, sacrificing for the cause of Jesus. And look, sacrifice is important. Self-denial is important. But if it's not motivated by love, I gain nothing. I gain nothing. And so just as the love of Christ must grip my heart and take hold of my intellect, so too the love of Christ must be the motivator for my will, for my actions, for the things that I go about doing. And so here I would say this. Paul has painted the picture for us of the man without Christ. Do you notice that? Not in his heart. Not in his mind, not in his will, the outworkings of his life. This is the picture of a person without the divine love of God imparted to them by the Holy Spirit. And what is the state of his heart? What is the state of his mind? What is the state of his will? Well, Paul says he's a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. He has nothing, he gains nothing, he is nothing. And as I read that, I think, oh, how we need Jesus Christ to transform us by, the, by his presence, by his love, by the working of the Holy Spirit. Because without love, what is our lives? Without love, 
without love, what are our lives producing for the kingdom of God? And so Paul begins to talk about the character and the nature and the virtue of love. With these thoughts in mind about the man without love, let's, let's look at the man with love or what the definition of love is. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Isn't that a picture of Jesus? To me, that is, it, that is the painting of the Lord Jesus right there. Which stands in sharp contrast to the Corinthian church. And to us, I mean, it's just the reality. When you hold your life up against that definition and that description of love, I think, wow, do I fall short of the glory of God. <laughs> Miss that one by a mile. And you'll notice that love is described by action words. Did you notice that? Love here is not described by feelings. It's not described by emotions. Paul is not writing about how love feels. Paul is writing about how love acts. What love does. And he says this, love is patient. Wow, I'm done right there. <laughs> you know, we tend to be very impatient, don't we? I have a friend, he, his, his life he would always say this line. It's just stuck with me. He says, I spent half my life waiting for people. And you know, at least, you know, I think of this love. I, I tend to be very impatient. Just put me behind a steering wheel and send me north towards seashell and ferry traffic. <laughs> That's impatience right there. Uh, you know, like you, I'm the picture of impatience in that situation. Or, you know, have me pull up to the BC Ferries uh, toll booth with nine minutes prior to a sailing as I watch the ferry load and pull away. I'm the picture of impatience. Or, you know, take me to the, the mall with my wife. Leave me on a park bench, you know, as she shops. The picture of impatience. And Paul says this, as he speaks of love, love is patient. Love Preserve, preserves and or perseveres patiently and bravely. It perseveres in misfortune and, and in trouble. Love is patient even when it's bearing with the offenses of others like driving 20 kilometers under the speed limit or whatever it might be. Love is patient with injury from as it comes from others. It's, it's slow to anger and I would say this, it's slow to punish. Love is patient. Love doesn't avenge itself at the first opportunity. It refuses to give way to anger. You know, we read about Jesus in the scripture and the gospel accounts that he was reviled. That men struck him. That they spew words of venom about his life. That they did things to harm him. And yet, in his love for them... He did not retaliate because love is patient. Love is kind. We can be so unkind. I can be so unkind. Sometimes we're inconsiderate. Sometimes we're harsh. 
Often we can be most harshest with those who mean the most to us in our own homes, in our marriages, with our children. And I think that when we say love is kind, there is a certain mildness about being loving, about being kind, a lack of aggressiveness, a lack of severity. You know, it's one thing to endure being wronged, but the triumph happens when we can be kind to the one who wronged us. And when I think of love as being patient and, and kind, I have to say Jesus is the perfect example. In terms of kindness, I mean, how about Jesus' relationship with a man by the name of Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, in the inner group, who at that last meal on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he had his hand on the table with Jesus and shared food with him. And even as Jesus knew what Judas was doing, even as he knew what Jesus, Judas was scheming, even as he knew the, the betrayal that was about to happen to him, Jesus was kind to Judas. Love is patient and love is kind. And you'll see that that's it right there. That is the definition. Look at your Bibles. Love is patient and kind. That's it. That's it. Now Paul tells us what love isn't. He says, love doesn't envy. Love does not envy. You know, when you think about envy and the working and what it does to a man's heart, well, envy was at the root of the very first murder recorded in the scriptures. Cain killed his brother Abel over envy. And envy is, is defined as a feeling of discontent or resentment over the possessions, the qualities of another, or over their favor and blessing that, that is upon their lives. You know, I think of our culture, our culture is bathed in envy. If you think about it, it is bathed in envy. Don't be fooled. Citizens of the world, you know, often look upon inequality in, in this world and they demand and they say, it's not just, it's not just. We are the 99. And that heart that is in the world uh, would take from those that have and say, give it to me and, and hand it out and redistribute. And I think for the most part, for the most part, those hearts are not necessarily gripped with injustice so much as they are gripped with envy. Because the human heart is gripped with envy. It's the spirit of murder. It's the spirit of murder that says, I will take what is yours and I will make it mine. Give it to me. And when it goes to its extreme, that's exactly what it does. It murders like Cain murdered Abel. Envy enslaved Joseph. The envy of his brothers took him and they lay hold of him and they ripped his clothes apart and they tossed him into a pit and they sold him to slave masters because of envy. Envy over his position. Envy over his, the favor of God that was upon his life. Envy over the favor that he had with his father. You know, envy put Jesus on the cross. That's what the scripture says. Matthew chapter 27 verse 18 says of Jesus that he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And there can be envy in the heart of Christians. And here we read that love does not envy. 
Love is content with the will of God. Love is content with the position handed out from God. Uh, love trusts the, the, God's plans. And if, if envy is eating you up, you know, say this, if, if envy is eating you up, you would do well to remember Jesus who went about doing good. He went about doing good. You know, we never get the sense from Jesus that, that he desired that good be done to him or that he ever said the famous words that my kids love. That's not fair. You, you don't read that in the Gospels that Jesus said, that's not fair. Because maybe his mother would have told him like mine did, life's not fair. And Jesus did not ever have that heart about him because love does not envy. Paul says love does not boast. That's the other side, side of the coin of that envy to me. That love does not boast. It doesn't show off. It doesn't brag. It isn't conceited or proud. Love does not need to win the praise and the applause of people. There's a, you know, my, my boys, they love WWE wrestling, you know, and they got all the figures in the wrestling ring and they build big elaborate things and they go for it. And one of the characters that they have is Jack Swagger. That's his name, Jack Swagger. And his persona is that he's got an inflated confidence, arrogance. That's his character. He struts and he parades himself into the wrestling ring with the strutting puffed up pride of a rooster, I would say. And we read here that there is no swagger in love. That's the picture. There's no swagger in love. Love is not seeking to win the applause and the praise of others because it's too big for that. Love doesn't boast. You know, we read of Jesus that Jesus, you know, he didn't arrive with swagger. When he came to Jerusalem, it was riding on a donkey, a humble donkey. Love does not boast because, and, and Jesus is that picture. He laid aside his glory. He humbled himself for the sake of other people. And, and as you think about it, you know, the question is, are we boastful or conceited or proud? Well, a look at Jesus is a humbling thing. Paul says love is not arrogant. Love doesn't puff up. That's the picture. The other translations will say that. Love does not puff up. It's a good picture. Love is humble. To be arrogant is to be self-focused, to be self-centered. And speaking of someone who, you know, to say that you're arrogant is to speak of someone puffed up who has a big head. They think too highly of themselves. And love does not swell with itself. That's the picture. It doesn't, doesn't swell with itself. Love is concerned with the welfare of others. That's like Jesus. That's just like Jesus. Jesus was concerned with my welfare. Jesus was concerned with your welfare. That's why he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. He laid down his life. Paul says, love is not rude. Rude speaks of, you know, just being ill-mannered, impolite, a lack of courtesy for other people. Love can... You know, I just think about that. It's amazing that the love of God that's imparted to us can manifest itself in the slightest of ways. Don't, I mean, don't think too smally, 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 small of this. <laughs> love can manifest itself in our lives through the seeming smallest of actions. And Paul says one of the actions of love 
is courtesy. It's not rude. Love is not rude. It's considerate of others. Think, wow, do our lives express courtesy for other people? At the grocery store, you know, standing in the lineup with your neighbors, their annoying dog or whatever it is, uh, in your home, does the love of Jesus lead you to the place where you're polite in your attitude and your behavior towards other people? Because love is not rude. You think of Jesus again. He always did the right thing at the right time in the right way. Never had the need to push himself, to be rude and to push himself to the front. Polite, courteous, considerate of others. His love does not insist on its own way. You know, Paul said elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And he says, have this mind amongst you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Look out for the interest of others. In Romans chapter 12, he says this, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Isn't that what a great thought. Outdo each other in showing honor, giving honor to people. Because love does not insist on its own way. That is to say that, that love is not selfish, but love forgets self. Love puts self in the back seat. Love puts others ahead of self. Love serves. That's why Jesus was called the servant of all. Love serves. Paul says love is not irritable. I can certainly be irritable. All of us can, right? Come to think of it, I can be an irritant. <laughs> and literally in the Greek, the translation here is to say, when he says that love is not irritable, that means this, love is not sharp, like a sword. It's not pointed. And some Christians, you know, can be so quick to put the knife in the back of, an, of another believer or in another person. You know, I think about being irritable, irritability. It's a characteristic that is very unpredictable. You know, you just never know what will set off the irritable person. And it leads to people tiptoeing around them. They never know what's going to set off the time bond. And look at, love is not irritable. Believers should not be like that. Approachable. People should not have to tiptoe around us ever. But know that they're that they're loved, because love is not irritable. It's not touchy. And I think about, you know, anger or irritability. Like, there, there is an appropriate direction for anger. The scripture tells us that, that be angry and do not sin. Jesus was angry. We know that. He kicked over the table of the money changers, and he fashioned his whip, and he, he drove out uh, people out of the house of God that had turned uh, the house of God from a place of prayer to a, to a place of profit. Jesus, Jesus hated sin. But when you think about Jesus and all the wrong that was done to him, think about that. Do we ever see Jesus angry with the wrong that was done to him? He didn't retaliate. Jesus did not get vindictive. And I would say this, if you want to get angry, get angry about sin. Get angry about your own sin. Uh, don't get angry about the sin in others. You know, hate sin. 
But we read here, love is not irritable. And it's so easy to be thin-skinned, to be irritable. Now I'd say this, love takes a chill pill. It's not easily provoked. Another characteristic of love. Paul says this, love is not resentful. Love is not resentful. You know, here's what love does. Love keeps a record of everything done in kindness to, to it, and then it's thankful to God. But it does not keep a record of offenses. It does not keep a record of, of the wrongs that it re- receives. You know, we all got our list, our record that we keep tally of, those who have wronged us. We can recount the injustice that we've received in the way that we've been treated. And You know, I, I, I was just meditating upon this, and this is where the Spirit of God met me in this text. Just thinking on this led me to the place where I said, God, I'm sorry. I forgive in the name of Jesus. I forgive so-and-so. I forgive this. And the whole, I just had my time with the Lord this week where he just set me free in my heart. And love is not resentful. You know, stuff happens. Stuff in life happens, doesn't it? And it's easy to carry your list of injustices and it's such a weight as you carry it over your shoulder. And love forgives. You know, if you think about the fact, you know, I would say this. If Jesus is your Lord, did you know that Jesus is counting no record of wrongs against you? He's not, he doesn't have a list of resentment for the ways that you've hurt him. Your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. The scripture says that it's been tossed into the sea of forgetfulness. His blood has covered our sin and he no longer remembers our offenses against him. Isn't that awesome? Jesus forgives and he remembers no more. He, does, he, he doesn't recall it to mind. He says, it's done. My blood took care of it. How's your memory in regards to the wrongs that have been committed against you? Love is not resentful. Paul says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. You know, love does not rejoice at its own wrongdoing, and love does not rejoice when others do wrong. You know, there's something about those tabloid papers, you know, when you're going through the grocery store aisle, that you like to just check them out and stare at the covers and read whatever tragedy is happening or the way someone's like blown up their life or exploded or ruined their marriage or done this or changed their body or done that. And they appeal to the, the sinful nature and you can like take pleasure in the failure of others. Wow, guy's such a loser. I'm so glad I'm not like him. And love does not take ple- the pleasure or does, you know, take, yeah, take pleasure in the failure of others and then puff itself up. Love is broken over what happens in other people's lives. Love does not delight in exposing weakness. You know, Paul connects these two here that love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but love rejoices with the truth. See, love wants the best for other people. Even Jesus did not take delight in exposing other people. You read that in the Gospels. When it came to people and their sin and their sinful behavior, Jesus sought to protect, 
Jesus sought to lead them to the place of repentance and then protect them from the injustice of other people who would judge them. Think about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Jesus did not justify her behavior. He told her, go and sin no more. But he did protect her from the injustice of those who would have stoned her while failing to recognize their own sin. And he forgave that woman caught in adultery. For me, as I think about this, the question is, how does my heart respond to the misfortune of other people? Do I take joy in it? Is there some sick pleasure for me in watching others mess it up? You know, do we gossip about it? Oh, did you hear? Did you hear what happened over there? Did you hear what happened here? Love doesn't do that. You know, I think of the cross. At the cross... At the cross of Christ, we are confronted with the reality of our sin. It's there that Jesus meets us with his shed blood. His blood is poured out for our reconciliation with God, for our forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus meets us there with mercy and grace. He doesn't say, let me rub your face in your sin. He says, you're forgiven, now let, let me pour out my mercy and my grace upon your life. Paul says this amazing line here in chapter se- uh, verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love bears all things. See, lo- love can suffer being wronged and not retaliate. You know, there's a weight with serving Christ. There just is. Jesus said, you know, take my yoke upon you. It's light and it's easy and it's absolutely true. But there is also... I often think there's also another responsibility that comes with serving Jesus, a weight to, to be Christ-like. Christ-like. And, and love gets under the load and it bears the weight and it continues on. It yokes itself to Jesus and it bears the weight and it keeps going. Love endures what it has to suffer. Love continues on in the face of hardship. Love is not shaken by ingratitude or the lack of praise. You know, Jesus bore more than we can ever imagine on the cross, right? He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He suffered ingratitude. He, he, he suffered physically. He suffered hardship. He suffered hate. He suffered death. He suffered the mocking and the chiding of the crowd. And he said this, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He bore up under the weight. He bore the weight of sin because love bears all things. Love believes all things. What does that mean? Does that mean love is naive? That it chooses ignorant? No, that's not what Paul is saying. You know, we sometimes say love is blind, right? Love is blind, speaking typically of, you know, two people in love and their willingness to overlook things that are really obvious to other people. (laughs) failing to recognize the facts because they're overwhelmed with emotion. So we say love is blind. But here we read that love believes all things. And when we say love believes all things, it means this. Love is not suspicious. Are you suspicious? Look at love is not thinking the worst in others. Love 
takes a kind view of other people, whatever the circumstance. You know, I read this as I was studying this week. It was from Alan Redpath. He said this, Love will consider the motives and make every allowance for failure. And when a man falls, love will think about the battle he must have fought and the struggle he must have had before he went down. I thought, wow. In, in, in my suspicious heart, I, I never considered the battle a person must have been in before sin took them down. And people tend to just judge one another. Believers tend to judge one another on the appearance of what we see on the outside and how we interpret things. And Jesus never did that. Jesus judged and he judges people on the basis of what is on the inside, in the heart, not on the basis of what is happening on the outside. And I would say this, may the Lord give us optimistic hearts. May the Lord give us kind hearts rather than the typical cynical, pessimistic human heart. May God give us a, a heart that believes all things because love believes all things. Paul says this about love, that love hopes all things. The opposite of hope in my mind is to be overcome with disappointment or dismay. I hope for better. I hope this would happen, but I was dismayed. I was disappointed. And love keeps hoping when other people throw in the towel. In hoping, love doesn't need to ignore facts. It doesn't need to ignore the facts, but with all vigilance, it can know that God is not willing, as the scripture says, that anyone should perish. That means Jesus never gives up hope. You think about Jesus? Jesus never gives up hope for anyone. What an awesome thought. Jesus never gives up on his expectation or his desire that the lost would be saved or that redemption can happen or that he can weave beauty into the midst of that which seems so destroyed. Jesus hopes all things. You know, the Lord's never discouraged. Do you think about that? Lord's never filled, his heart is never filled with dismay. Because God is love. Jesus never surrendered to despair. And Jesus is planning for my good. That's what the scripture says. Jesus is planning for your good. He has plans for our good. And therefore, there is hope in the midst of all things. And Paul also says this about love, that love endures all things. Love endures all things. When, when everything is gone... When all has been left behind, we're going to talk about this more next week because he's going to go on to say that love never ends. Love endures all things. When all has been left behind in the face of all that seemed impossible, in the face of all that disappeared, love will endure because love cannot be conquered. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And there is no greater example of love than the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 says this about, I think it was Paul who wrote it, and he says in chapter 12, looking to Jesus, look to Jesus, he says, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then Paul says in verse 3, consider him who endured 
from sinners such, such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now I want to read to you the, the rest of this chapter. It says, Love never ends. As for, the pro- as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest is love. You know, the scripture tells us that God is love. That God is love. You think, of, you think about the Lord. The Lord doesn't need faith. He doesn't need faith. God is love. And this is a great description of Jesus here in this chapter. His nature, his greatness, his heart toward you. And I want to tell you something about Jesus. Jesus wants to place his love in your heart so that your speech is affected. He wants to place his love in your mind so that your thinking brings glory to God. He wants to touch the motivation of your life, your will, so that you will do things for his glory, so that you'll serve him. Heart, mind, and will. I want to read to you again. Would you look at verse 4? And I'm going to just take the word love out of there and I'm going to put the name Jesus in there as we read this. Check it out. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. And my friends, whatever situation you have happening in your life, the solution is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to bring his presence and his reality into your heart and into your mind and into your actions. And you know, the thing about Jesus is it's, I don't need to cut myself. I don't need to burn myself. I don't need to give, blow myself up and give my life so as to attain the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, it's not about me attaining his favor, but it's about this. It's the opposite. Jesus must attain me. I don't attain him. Jesus must attain me. And the scripture says that that happens this way, by surrender. I surrender, Jesus. I I, I surrender my defenses against you. I I ask you to forgive my sin and, and I turn my faith towards you and I invite you, Jesus, I surrender to come and to be the Lord of my life and to forgive me of my sin and to manifest this love that I hear about in in my heart and in my mind and in my will. You don't attain Jesus, my friends. Jesus attains you. And the question is this morning, 
has Jesus got a hold of your life? For you believers, does he have your heart? Does he have your mind? Does he have your will? For you that don't know Jesus this morning, the scripture says he doesn't have your life. And you have the opportunity this morning to surrender your life to him. And so today as we pray, I'm going to invite you guys, would you stand with me? I want to give us just that opportunity as we, as we pray to invite Jesus Christ into your heart and into your life. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, like I said, it's this simple. It's not something you attain. You allow him to attain you. And it happens through surrender. Typically in the church, we, we do it through prayer. We say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive my sins. I acknowledge my wrongs against you. You died on the cross for me. And Jesus, in faith, I invite you to come and be the Lord of my life, knowing that you've forgiven my sin and that you'll fill me with your spirit. 